Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. Author, actor, and podcaster Vance Newdorf is a man of many talents. In addition to those three pursuits, he's also a set designer and builder and the executive director at the Badlands Amphitheater, Canada's largest outdoor theater stage. Our conversation covers everything from his free-range childhood, his transformation into a voracious reader thanks to The Hobbit, how he stumbled almost literally into acting, the perks of releasing a novel in progress as a podcast, and a lot more. Vance has a lot to say about the benefits of saying yes to new, unexpected opportunities and experimenting with the ones you're already involved in. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation with Vance Newdorf. Vance Newdorf, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity. I'm, I'm so glad that you're here today. Oh, I'm glad to be here too. This is just, I've been looking forward to this. It's going to be great fun. Me too. So you have really had a pretty wide creative history and I would love to start by hearing how you got started. Were, was this something that started when you were a kid or was it later on or some other way that you got your start? Yeah, I would say uh, my start doesn't have a, a kind of a, a beautiful beginning. I guess it is in a sense, but it's it came out of being just a very much a loner, uh, always on my own. And I, there's a many different factors in that, uh, you know, through how I was growing up and uh, factors at school and other things that were going on. And right from the get-go, I would just spend hours by myself. Um, I was a middle child of five. Other two sides were doing their own thing. And I would play with, you know, macrame strings, tying knots, just as a, just a tiny little tot. So then my parents brought me Lego and then that was kind of like just creating, making, and then, I mean, I love, I love the, the name of your podcast, follow your curiosity. And, uh, I did, and I had the most incredible places to follow it because we lived on the top of Snob Hill in Creston, British Columbia. Yeah, it's called that. It was called Snob Hill. And we had the topmost house. Like we had the snobbiest house on Snob Hill. And it was an incredible place with a background, a, a, a mountain, like a literal mountain right in our backyard. I could walk out the back door, walk 30 feet, and I'd be on the mountain. And they were logging up there. And then there was the the town reservoir was up there. And I could throw a line over it and catch a fish. I just had this magical place. So without many friends, I just kind of went exploring. I followed my curiosity, sometimes almost to my death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably a little too far. I, I'm yeah. laughing when you said Snob Hill because that's what they called my school district in my hometown. Oh, okay. Suburb York oh, Suburban fun. School District, they called Snob Hill. Yeah. Which uh -huh, is there we go. because we had the super ritzy neighborhood in town, but we also had some yes. of the poorest neighborhoods in town, but that didn't yes. deter anyone. So. I'm fascinated that Snob Hill existed somewhere else, but, well, but it, it did. sounds yeah. amazing. I mean, to be able to walk 30 feet and be on a mountain sounds phenomenal to me. Yeah, it was a great place. I, I, I think my parents, uh, they, their line of work, they were just so busy all the time. In fact, the one year my mother, I think she said she had company 350 days out of the year. Uh, we never, I never saw them. I was just a, a little kid and I was riding my bike over near canyons and going fishing by myself. It was just a, just this crazy wild experience uh, growing up. And I think that just fueled me to say, anything's possible, go follow the road, see where it leads. And uh, yeah, it was great fun. 
Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, these days they'd have you, your parents arrested for letting you <laughs> do all that stuff by yourself, which is understandable, but also a shame. I think it's it, a, it a lost experience. For I a hundred percent agree with you. I have uh, a yard here where I tried to encourage my kids to build a fort in a tree. I even built the stairs up into it so they'd feel safe. I couldn't get them to do that kind of stuff. And I just go, I don't get it. You got a tree, you got boards, you got nails and a hammer, make a fort. Like, why wouldn't you? It's there. It says <laughs> the tree is screaming at you. So then I actually built just, I totally built them a fort in a tree, just did it. And they used it some, but I, I don't get the generation that finds, you know, virtual realities so much more or, or, or more intriguing or more engaging than the physical ones. I, I don't, doesn't, I don't follow that place. I wonder yeah. if it's the addictive nature of the screen stuff, you know, I mean, even those of yeah. us who grew up without them find that a challenge and the kids who are growing up with it, I think it just sucks you right, right yeah. in. Yeah. 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 But, but let's get back to your start. So when did you start playing around with writing and theater and all of the other things that you do? Well, it's, it's interesting because I just listened to your last podcast with Alison Verhalen and uh, her background and, and starting in this. I never had any of that. Uh, I had some, like I said, loner issues and the rest of it. Desperately wanted to be in drama in high school, and junior, but stayed away from it. I lived out in the shops where I could be uh, by myself and create and build. And I took every shop class. I even learned how to build log homes in grade 12. Um, you know, we had everything at our beck and call. We had the best shops, technology departments. I just lived out there. That was where I lived because I could kind of isolate myself. So I never, I loved it. I would watch it. Um, you know, I can remember in English class, they had us learn a soliloquy from Shakespeare and I just ate it up and I performed that thing to the nth degree. And they were going like, where did this kid come from? I still remember it. Um, the whole thing. And, uh, but then it was really interesting. Um, my son decided he wanted to be Noah Claypole in the local theater production of Oliver. And I, like you, I read about your singing in choir. I love choir. I love to sing. I sang all the time. And I got to the back of this audition hall. He goes up and does his audition. And the people, like Semi knew them at the front, the directors, turned around to me and said, are you going to audition? I said, no, 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 I'm just here to, I'm just here to pick him up and to, you know, to bring him down, take him out. And they said, well, um, can you hit this note? And they hit this high C. And I said, oh yeah, yeah, I can hit that. And they said, you're Bumble. And I said, <laughs> what's that? And they said, you're Bumble. We don't have anybody that can hit that note in that song, One Boy, Boy for Sale. And I said, uh, and they said, please, will you do it? And I said, yes. And I had so much fun, both with my son, that I just went on. And I went into Anna Green Gables with my daughter. And I was recently in, um, uh, what's the song? Daddy Warbucks, uh, Annie. Annie. I was just in Annie with my granddaughter. You know, she's now, what, she was 15 at the time. We did Annie together. So it, I, my, it was just like such a thrill. And then I started set construction and I started doing stuff all in this small local theater. And then lo and behold, I land a job as the executive director as Canada's largest outdoor theater stage. So now I'm doing that. So it was the back door. I have no credentials. Like don't tell the kids I ta taught set building too that I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> but I just <laughs> learned as I went along. I followed my curiosity. You know, I think that there's so much to be said for learning as you go along. I think I'm, I'm very fond of quoting Hugh Laurie and I 
won't get the entire thing right. But he basically says, you know, I don't really think there's any such thing as ready. You know, there's yes. only right now. You might as well do yeah. it right now. And I think we get yeah. so hung up on, oh, I'm not ready. I don't know anything. I don't I don't know how to do this and whatever. Well, hey, you know what? I didn't know how to do a podcast when I started doing this either, but I figured yeah, it out. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I mean, sometimes you just have to go where the inspiration and the energy points you and say, I'll figure it out on the way. And, yep. you know, that's a, actually a perfectly valid way to operate. But a lot of us have had it so beaten into us that, no, are you ready? Are you prepared? Have oh, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. You're not ready. Yeah. Yeah. And I also love that you just went and said yes when that opportunity was handed to you. I think that's an yeah. amazing thing that we yeah. don't do often enough. Well, I think there's uh, one of the things, projects that I embarked on uh, some years ago. I love this 3,000-year-old book of wisdom that I kind of studied for a while, about 30 years. And then I thought, I'm going to retranslate it because I don't like the current translation. So I worked on that. Then I finished it. Then I had it memorized. So then my theater geek friend said, it's 5,000 words long. I had the whole thing in my head. And they said, well, why don't you perform it? So I went, oh, cool. Let's make an open fire brazier and I'll cook a, a meal. It's like a baba ganoush. It's a, called Mirza Hesame. And I'll recite the entire book while I cook in costume. So they helped me make a costume and they helped me make a brazier. And I went around and toured this thing around. But one of the great things that Kohelet says 3,000 years ago is whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Because you are going to die someday. So why not seize the opportunity now? And I looked at that and I kind of made that a mantra of my life. Yeah, don't, I'm not trying to make a career. I'm not trying to make a plan. It's just that things that come along, whatever it is, I'm just going to go at it whole hog, just get into it and something might come out of it. Who knows? I don't know. Time and chance happen to us all. That's another one of his statements. You don't know what's going to succeed, this or that, or if both will do well. So just throw yourself into them. And I love that. I, and I figure if it lasted 3,000 years, good enough for me. I'll take it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's obviously done you well. What was the book again? Well, I call the book The Wisdom of Kohelet. It's actually in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures called Ecclesiastes, which is a really bad name and it gets a really bad rap. So I actually made a podcast of that book. Uh, and then what I did is I turned around and I went, people don't understand this book. It's it's the book that inspired the birds to sing, to write the, the lyrics right. to turn, turn, turn to everything. Okay. So it, it belongs to mankind as a whole, but it's been landlocked within these more religious systems and given a bad rap and it's been closed. It's been lost to everybody else. So I did the, the translation. I recited it all, made a podcast of that. And then I wrote the novelization of Kohelet's life because I thought this guy needs a new place to speak from. So I wrote this wonderful little story about Kohelet. He's an old man like me. Uh, he's growing up on the edge of the market. He's poor. And there's this little bird called Simca that comes to his windowsill and sings to him. And he's got this friend, this great big fellow that encourages him to write his wisdom down. And I gave him a backstory because I thought someone's got to give this guy a, a new pedestal from which to speak. And it's great stuff. I, I love it. It's, it was one of my favorite projects. It's not doing anything. <laughs> it's kind of sitting there and every once in a while a person might wander in and listen to it, but it's not really going anywhere. And maybe that's, maybe wisdom's just not a real hot commodity right now. Oh, maybe we I need think... Facebook instead. No, no. I think there is a, I was going to say hunger, but I think craving is a better word for, for wisdom right now, but well, I'm not sure how I would people agree. are talking about it. But I think 
I think it's like, I think a lot of people have this sense that there's something missing. They might not know what it is. Mm -hmm. They might not know exactly what they're craving, but I think that that's probably it. Yeah. And there's so much of it. Oh, that one's, uh, it's a .ca because of course I'm in Canada. It's just called thescroll.ca. The scroll. So uh, he, his whole purpose in life at that point in time is to write this scroll. And his friend Benjamin is saying, write, master, write. And uh, all his friends are saying in the market, yeah, you need to write your teachings down. So I give him a place so that when he says one of his famous sayings out of the book, I give the context so you can kind of get an idea. And it's, it's a really easy story to get. It takes maybe an hour and a half to listen to the whole story. But I think it sets his teachings free and if anybody ever does discover it and like it, I think they will, they'll find some real satisfaction because his fundamental question is, what are you working so hard for? Ooh. Why are you working so hard? Why? He's only got one question. He says right at the beginning and five times through the book, I've got one, one theme that I'm going after. What are we working so hard for? What is the benefit? And he uses a word called yithron, which means a lasting measure. What's left over after the transaction? What lasting benefit can you gain from all the hard work at which you toil under the sun? So it's not about meaning in life. It's just asking one question. What are you working so hard for? And then he goes through all the avenues that we so often pursue and kind of goes, yeah, that's good, but it's not really going to take you anywhere. Use it, but it's not going to land you anywhere. It's just a really cool book. I've loved it. So I, I think right now I would say in the history of the world, I'm the only person in the history of the world who has studied the book, memorized the book, translated the book, and written a novelization of the author's life. There's nobody else that's done it, uh, <laughs> but I've got all of one follower. So whoever you are out there, good on you. Well, you may get a couple more after this. You never know. <laughs> oh, you so. never know. Yeah. It's a fun book. Wow. So... Before we started, you mentioned hearing The Hobbit read to you as a school kid. And I know that there's more of a story there. So I wonder if you can, for everybody who wasn't listening when we talked before, if you can kind of back up and and tell us about that experience and what what it meant for you. Yeah, I mean, like I said, growing up a loner, uh, kind of on the edge of that mountain, living kind of, you know, this kind of backwards kind of life in in a sense, on the edge of the of a town. Um, and uh, so when I went to school, I, I really didn't like school. I didn't like to be around other people. I found myself, you know, like we talked about the bullies and the playground and all that stuff. And um, I didn't like to be there. But then in grade four, I got to school and my teacher said, I'm going to read you a chapter of a really cool book every day. And so she started reading us The Hobbit. I could hardly wait to get to school. I had not been a reader to that point in time. No real interest. I had the outdoors. But as in most towns in the snow in the winter in Canada, there is wintertime as well. And um, so I started, she read that and it was like, no, just the lights came on. It was like, whoa. And I went, is there other things like this? And then I started learning from other people. Yeah, there was Frank Herbert and there was Dune and there was uh, Robert Heinlein, Have Space It Will Travel. And there was uh, uh, Fours of the Puma Clan and Daybreak 2250 written by Andre Norton, which wasn't her real name. She wrote under a male name so she could sell her books. Really sad in that sense, but fantastic books. You know, and I just started reading. I could not get enough of it, you know, all through the night flashlight under the covers, you know, the traditional thing. 
So that's what got me into this whole idea of these beautiful stories, these fantasy and science fiction stories. And that's why I'm trying to write my own. But uh, whether I'll succeed or not, uh, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> you, you and you and uh, Allison were just talking when I listened to the podcast about how there's some stories that should never see the light of day <laughs> and that you shouldn't get attached to the fact that you are writing the great American novel. And I went, uh oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I'm in trouble. I better not admit to Nancy that that's me. Um, but yeah. You never know what you'll end up with. No, you don't. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting on the subject of falling in love with things. I was one of the only people I knew when I finished my MFA program who still liked their book. Hmm. Interesting. And it honestly freaked me out because all yeah. of the, my friends and a lot of the other people that I didn't know as well were like, I hate this thing. I hate this yeah. book. I never want to look at this book again. And I kept thinking... Who, which, which of us has the problem? Because is it weird that I still like my book? Yeah. Is it, is there something wrong with me that I still like my book? Or are you all just being really hard on yourselves? You know, and I, I still don't really know the answer to that. And the more time I have from that book, the more, the easier it is for me to look at it and go, oh Lord, why did I do that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, or you know, wow, I should have fixed this. So it's it's impossible really to have a, an objective view on your own. Oh, for sure, anyway. for sure. And it yeah. will change over time. And I'm sure that even somebody like Neil Gaiman looks back at something that he wrote 30 years ago and goes, God, I can't believe the rest of the world ever read this. Yeah. But, well, you know, you never know. You have a sense though, because I think, you know, most first books are people kind of trying to figure out what they're doing. Yeah, it's kind of like the training wheels, and then you graduate to the real bike. But there yeah. are exceptions. So well, you know. I, I I like to think that I am an exception then, because I've been working on this thing for whatever it is now, going on 12, 13 years, and I decided during these last weird two years, I decided to cheat the system, because rather than kind of finish it, get it put into a final print version, try to sell it to a publisher, I thought I'm gonna go straight to the public. And I'm just going to make it available as a free podcast audiobook. And then when my listeners listen and they point out, oh, I didn't get that part. It's like the oral story traditions of sitting around the campfire a thousand years ago or hundreds of years ago. And the storyteller tells a story. Afterwards, someone asks them a question and the storyteller goes, hmm, I'm going to add that in next time. That's a good bit. And that's what I've been doing. I've been re-recording. I've been rewriting. Somebody will say, I didn't get what Corvin was doing. And I'll go, you know what? That's kind of a, a, a missing bit. I'm going to write that in. I'm going to re-record that section, put it back out. And the ones that listened before, they don't know. And it really doesn't, it's not my major change. You're going to kill characters off just for on a whim, but the new ones coming along, they get a smoother story. So I'm thinking that someday when I finish this whole thing all the way through, then I'll release the eBooks and they'll be in much better shape because my audience will have already taught me what they think makes sense. So I'm, I'm having fun with it. I've got over, I think, 141 chapters and podcasts out. Wow. Well, you're nearing, you're coming up on 100. I saw that. You're on now what? I have nine? a little bit more than 100. Do you? Oh, good for yeah. you. Okay. I was on the Apple podcast site and I thought I saw a 98 or 99 or something. That's interesting. I wonder if it's not showing you everything. I'll have to well, I, I have the same problem with that one. It's not showing everything on mine either. Yeah. They, they've left some out. But anyways, we don't need to go into technicalities. But, 
<laughs> but that's a really interesting approach to writing something. I mean, you're basically getting live feedback. Yes. And, you know, I, I wonder what, what will happen. Cause for me, when I was revising my book, it was so interesting to me, even if, you know, when it was half done and certainly when I had the full draft, it was like, okay, now I have to go make all of this work. Yeah. Um, you know, you can see some things as you're going, but it's not until you have the full thing that you can see, oh, back here in chapter three, I said this guy's name was Joe. And yes. then after chapter seven, <laughs> he's been Bob yeah. the rest of the time. So I yeah. have to fix that, you know, and yeah. that's, that's a small example. There can be bigger examples. You know, I was reading through and I didn't expect revising a whole novel to be as fascinating as it was. But oh, I, I love really it. I really enjoyed yeah. finding all the things that I was like, wait, yeah. what's that about? This bit, I forgot that this bit was in here. Should that relate to something else or is it really just a throwaway thing? Because if it is, it yeah. probably shouldn't be here. You yeah. know, and how do I make this, this thing that happened that I forgot happened a little differently jive with what happens later on? And, you know, all of that, it was like solving a puzzle. And I, I just ah, was yeah. fascinated by that. Yeah, and, and that's an intriguing thing. I just put out a podcast on that because during this last Christmas, we all got sick and everybody in the whole family was sick. So we postponed Christmas, but under the tree was two jigsaw puzzles. I knew they were there because I had been told to buy them by a niece. And so we pulled them out and I haven't done puzzles. I don't know, can't remember when. And I started finding I liked doing puzzles. And then I started thinking about the fact that this book podcast series, because it's three books and it's coming up on 500,000 words, um, is it's like I'm making a puzzle, but at the same time I'm putting it together, I'm making the pieces. So when I get to yeah. a place where a piece is missing, I have to work really hard to now figure out. And sometimes it means going out to all the surrounding pieces and doing a little bit of jigging and jogging to make that all come back together. And it, yeah, I think your, your, uh, metaphor there of the puzzle, it's, you're both putting the puzzle together and making the pieces simultaneously. Really yeah. fun. It's sort of like being the detective for your own mystery. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, uh, like I said, uh, this thing is just keep, it keeps growing on me. So the first book was one point of view. Uh, second book, which we're halfway through on the podcast is two points of view. The third one is seven and it's just keeps incrementally growing. And so now I've got this system of papers and pieces to try to figure out, okay, like you said, that person said that over there, it's gotta be true over there. So, but I'm yeah. looking forward to having my, uh, my listeners, they'll, they'll point some of those things out for me. So that's going to be good. Well, I have to think that you notice some just as you're recording it too. I, I have found the best editing process, like, okay, so the book one's called a hammer. And I actually did self-publish a paperback version of it, which had a flip book in the corner. I do all kinds of fun stuff and a hammer would spin around. Oh, by the way, here it is. I actually made the hammer. So that's oh, my wow. stone. That's my stone hammer. It's made out of yellow cedar. There's a podcast about the making of that. But because I'm a theater geek, I had to have my own prop to figure out how it worked. <laughs> but but um, so in writing the hammer, putting it out there, uh, and I had a number of editors work on things for me. When I went to record it, I thought I was just going to record it. And all of a sudden I realized I got to have my red pen here. Because when you're saying it, it didn't sound right. And I'd say, that doesn't, I don't, I don't like that. So I actually did way more editing 
in going in. I mean, tweaks and, and not major plot changes, but things to smooth it out, make it sound nice as an audiobook. It was a great, I loved it. And I think that's what inspired me to say, let's do them all. Let's put the medallion out there. Let's put the scepter out there when it's done. Let's just make this an audiobook project. And uh, we'll see if it catches on. Some people might not like that that concept of a changing story in some degree, but we'll see. Oh, I bet there are some people who are fascinated by it, though. Well, I probably I, yeah. would be. You know, I would be fascinated to be able to watch somebody else's process that way. Yeah. 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 And, and reading something out loud, I have to say, was one piece of advice that I was given in grad school. And boy, did I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. Yeah. I, like, I don't want to. I don't want to listen to my sound of my own yeah. voice. I don't. Funny how that's not a problem anymore since I started doing this. <laughs> you learned. felt like yeah. busy work. You yes. Know? But there's absolutely no denying you trip over words. You yep. know, there's something you need to fix. You know, yep. there, it's it's good advice for a reason, no matter how much you might want to resist it. Yeah. Don't only read it out loud, record it and listen to it afterwards. And you'll go, ooh, there's two of those words within, you know, 10, 15 seconds of each other. And it sounds odd. Mm -hmm. I better, I better do some work on that. Yeah. I would agree with you. I, I got drawn into this kicking and screaming because my so the, the there's a couple boxes left i actually did a bookstore tour self-published this thing it was it was a fun project um and there's a whole story behind the writing of it for my kids and my daughter and it getting lost and then being found again so i i put it out there because i had lost my job and i thought i'm going to be the next great american writer huh yeah right bookstores got the proceeds and i got to buy gas and donuts um yeah. <laughs> so I had a few of these and, and, uh, it was at the start of, you know, 2021. And my son said to me, dad, why don't you record that thing? The grandkids are getting older now and they might like it. And that way, and this thanks kid, when you die, we'll have your voice reading the story to us and the great grandchildren, whatever. And I went, Oh, wonderful. You're already thinking of me dying. Great. Thank you very much for that. Okay. <laughs> so then I said to them, but I, I don't think I can do the voices. I, I've heard good audiobooks, and and the voices just add so much. And they said, no, just do it in your own voice. Well, that's okay until you get to a character that you said in your book and he spoke in a high grading voice and you go, okay, well, I can't just carry on reading. I got to at least try. And so I, I did. And there's some characters, there's, there's an old guy with no teeth and he's kind of a villain. And I have to make a face like that to, to make him sound right. Because otherwise it sounds like he's just speaking normally with teeth in his head and he doesn't have any. So it, it's been a real kick. And there's been times I've said to them, are you sure I should be doing this? You know, maybe we should wait till someone, no, no waiting, get it done. So. No waiting, yep. get it done is good advice. Yeah, exactly. It is a good advice. Just get started, get going. Yeah. Yep. There's, there's magic in just doing. Yeah. Yeah, there is. And doing it consistently, like you and Allison were talking about, you know, do something every day. I, I, I will not go through a day. I have a huge spreadsheet. I will not go through a day without writing something on the scepter, which is book three or a backspace podcast, uh, every day. And some days it's magic and it flows. Other days it's like, ugh. I wrote, you know, 151 words. Oh, well, they weren't there yesterday and maybe tomorrow they'll spire a thousand. Who knows? Yeah, it's very true. Words on the page are still words on the page. They are like words on the page. Yeah. They are something that was not there before. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued, you know, that you're talking about having to do all of the voices and not being sure about that since you've done theater. 
And I had also already been wondering how the theater has influenced the writing and the podcast and possibly vice versa. So I'm, what do you think about that? Has it? Well, it has. It has in this sense. I think not so much from the acting part of it, because, of course, you know, when I played uh, Alfred P. Doolittle, oh, I'm getting married in the morning. You know, you'd put <laughs> your, you'd have your one accent and you'd hone it and you'd hone it and you'd make it work. Uh, this has so many more voices. That's a real challenge. Keep them all straight, especially. Uh, I've got a whole chart to try to keep me on the straight and narrow there. But the thing that I found in the theater side that was more interesting was the fact that I got into building the sets and building the props. And to the point where when I started writing, I would create the set first. I would use SketchUp, which is a 3D modeling program, and I would make the set in 3D. And then once that set was done, I would take Corvin or Kate and I'd walk them onto the stage. And in my mind, all I was doing was following them and recording what they did. And it was so fascinating to me to, to be in that place where I knew the characters well enough. I had set the stage. I'd created the props. I knew what they had with them. I knew how it would feel to work them. And there was times when I was writing late at night that I was actually freaking myself out because the stuff was flowing so much and the creativity was coming so along so well that the hair on my arms would stand up as I was, as I was typing. And I would just go, where is this coming from? Like, am I going loony? <laughs> you know, it's like, but that was the, I think the, the kind of the freeing thing is that now I have essentially what I've created is an elevator play, you know, where you, you lock people into a very confined space and my entire world, I've, I've gone differently. I don't have the universe. I don't have Doctor Who and time travel and the rest of it. I've got 1952. I've got real space, real time, and an underground world accessible through a kid's backyard. And when he goes in there, it's not a big world. And so the stage, I know the nooks and crannies of that stage. And when he moves about and then Kate joins him and then the other characters come in, it's absolutely fascinating what they discover. And I go, how did you find that? I didn't even know that existed. You know, they turned a corner and they, and I'm typing and, and Kate saw, and she tells me what she saw. And I go, oh, well, way to go. Thanks for discovering that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how the human mind works on this creativity thing. I think you just got to unleash it and let it go and follow your curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. And it's funny because as soon as you said, have, have I gone loony? I thought, no, the loony part is when you think you're losing it because your characters have started talking to you. Yes. Which is often where people really, you know, they're like, what's going on here? I don't understand. Yep. I'm losing my mind. Something's wrong. And it's like, no, actually that's a really good sign because your characters are coming to life and let yep. them go, man. See what they do. See what they do. It, it just happened to me. I just put out a backspace, uh, backspace podcast on Kate. I wrote this great scene. I thought it was a great scene and uh, it was a battle scene and she's coming in, riding in on this creature and da, 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 da. And partway through the scene, Kate looks at me and says, what are you writing? This makes no sense. I'm not even close to here. This is not me. You've written all this other stuff for me that shows me becoming this strong leader and you're making me do this cartoony thing? Like, what's this all about? And I kind of, I stopped and I went, yeah, she's right. I've got the wrong person here, don't I? And so I wrote this whole, 
uh, Backstage, their little four-minute podcast where I, it's called Directing the Scene. And I send Kate back to her trailer to cool off. And I and I let the cast have a, a lunch break. And then I rethink it's you and I go, oh, you know what? This scene belongs to this person. That's who's supposed to be in the scene. So I rewrote it and then I restaged it. And we would carried on. So yeah, you're right. That's you kind of do go, uh oh, I I'm off the edge. Here there be monsters. You know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I have to say, I haven't had one actually stop me in mid-sentence and say, exactly what do you think you're doing right now? Yeah, exactly. That <laughs> does make sense. That happened to me, but I did have one, you know, insist to me that he was from Chicago, which is a city I've never been to. And I kept saying, ah. you can be from London, you can be yeah. from New York, you can be from Boston, you can be from Philadelphia, you can, you can be from yeah. Baltimore, you can be from all these other places, but I can't write Chicago because I've never been there. Yeah, I know. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm from Chicago. And yeah. I kept saying, no, you don't understand. I need you to be from a place I can write because I yeah. know it. And he was like, no, I'm yeah. from Chicago. And I find, and this was one of the first times this ever happened to me. So it was definitely, have I completely, do I need to have my brain examined? Um, and I said, okay, I will go to the library. I will take out all the books on Chicago. Yeah. I will look at maps, and all of this stuff. Fine. But then you're going to be a teacher because I know how to write that. <laughs> Interesting. And he said, okay. Okay. Like, deal. Done right. deal. Yeah. <laughs> And I bet you by the time you were done, you were, you saw why Chicago made sense. Actually, I never finished that book because oh, I was okay. in the middle of it when I started the MFA program and uh, I okay. thought that I'd be able to finish it in the program. And they said, no, no, you have to start something new. Uh, so that okay. one's just sitting. Somewhere. It's sitting there. Yeah. It's there. Yeah. I've got a few yeah. of those. Yeah. It's amazing how, uh, there's certain stories that you work on that just, they, they don't let you go. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's this, this is called the core series and it, it just won't let me go. I mean, it's got started, uh, in a hospital room after facelift surgery. Um, not to make me look better cause you are on camera with me. So you can see that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> the, the others listeners will just have to take your word for it. But you know, they cut me around cause there's a tumor growing on the side of my face that was going to paralyze my ability to lift and, and speak properly and the rest of it. Uh, and when I woke up from that surgery and I can still remember it within the dark with the machines going and the tubes and all the rest of it. And I had this idea for a story. So I asked the nurse and I said, will you bring me a, a some a paper and a pen? And she did. She brought me a line steno pad and a red pen, which was so interesting because I started writing this in this kind of weird situation, my mind flowing with all these ideas of this really cool story out on the plains, this big rock in the backyard and this passageway through and da, 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 da. And maybe I'd watch too much Fraggle Rock. Maybe that was the problem. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I it just, and this red pen glowing in this hospital room and that story, I've just never been able to let it go. It just keeps coming back and coming back and saying, finish me, finish me. And so I'm going to, I'm going to finish it. Yeah. I think that's a good problem to have. Yeah, it is. It's, it's grabs you. Yeah. The things that, that grab you, grab you for a reason. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad they gave you a steno pad and a red pen and yes. that you ran with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause a lot of people wouldn't and, you know, would be like, I'm in the hospital. I can't write right now. I'm not no. going to do anything with this, yeah. you know, and 
it's probably easier now because people would just say, give me my phone, you know, yes. start typing yeah. on their phone or recording something, recording something or, or whatever. But a lot of people wouldn't even think to do that. No. And, and I love the fact that technology plays in so much now that you can. So I told you about Christmas and when we got sick and, um, you know, I have been working on this book now for whatever, well, these theories of books, it's one story. It's like Lord of the Rings. It's one story, but broken into three parts. They just, they sequentially happen right on the heels of each other. But um, I've never really quite known the ending. It's been like haunting me and going, I, I, I have this inkling, but uh, I didn't know for sure where I was going. And then we got sick, canceled Christmas. And I'm up here in my study because everyone's coughing and we're sleeping all apart. And uh, I had my phone with me, my, and, it's sitting there and all of a sudden I had that same experience like the hospital sick. I couldn't open my eyes because my head hurt so bad, but I could turn my phone on and start recording and the ending came. It just flowed. And the next morning it's Christmas morning. The lights are on. Nobody's up because everyone's had a bad night. And I start typing and I put a record number of 4,037 words down that day, just pounding out that ending. And by, and it was just, it was one of, again, those, you know, hair raising experiences where you just go, I love it. I own it. And it bookended so nicely the hospital experience and the sick experience. So it's a sick book. <laughs> <laughs> so don't read it. No, just kidding. <laughs> or listen, I guess now. Yeah, too much fun. Yeah, th those experiences where where you suddenly land in that flow state and things keep coming and you're not yep. sure how and, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, they... I've had them. I don't have them all the time, but I've had them enough to, you know, the one that, that comes to mind for me, I always think of it as I wrote 10 pages in an hour, but now that I'm thinking about that, that sounds impossible. Like even just typing wise, that sounds yes, a lot. awfully impossible, but it was, it was 10 pages in a very short amount of time. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I was absolutely exhausted by the end of it. Oh yeah. 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 But, but yeah. the best kind. Yes. Yeah. Happy exhaustion, joyful yeah. exhaustion. Like, wow. I love it. You know, you own exactly. it. Yeah. Beautiful. A, yeah. A heavy wow element to it. Like, boy, yeah. I don't know what just happened, but whoo, that was wild. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's, those are, and, and you, you don't live for those. You can't, you know, create for those. They are like this idea of, you know, following along. And I just did an interview with someone who likes to hike in the bush and, and you're going through the little trail and it meandering and it's tight and it's enclosed around you. You can't see very well. And then you get to that high point and all of a sudden those are the moment and you see the whole surroundings around you and it's gorgeous, but that's not the whole hike. The whole hike was a lot of work sometimes looking at your toes so you wouldn't trip on the tree roots to get and, and scrambling up a, a cliff that you could hardly move and make a very few paces in, you know, in a, in a time. But then when you get there and you go, ah, you know, the, it was worth it. I love hiking. So it's the hiking metaphors there. But yeah, this idea that you can't expect those mountaintop experiences. They're there for a reason, but you got to work to get to them. Yeah. And, and actually that reminds me of the EL Dr. O quote that I will also not get exactly correct, but you know, he said that writing is like driving at night with your headlights on. You can't see the whole way, but you can get the, the whole distance that yes. way. Yeah. You know, you can only see as far as your headlights will show you. Yep. And an awful lot of the time it's like that, but that's also what I find exciting. You know, it's like, oh, I don't yeah. know what's just past the headlights, no. you no. know, some wild, cool thing might turn up and awesome. Let's see what yep. happens. 
Well, I, I love the headlight analogy because, um, you know, my books, of course, being underground, there's a lot of darkness in the books, a lot of going through passages and, and turning in a light and holding a light and different kinds of light. And that's just it. It, it sometimes I'm pushing along through there and, um, something will come up and I'll go, you know, the light shows a spot and I'll go, and, and sometimes I'll recognize where it came from because there was this one, there's one part in the hammer where he gets stuck. And it came from my fascination. I've always been fascinated by caves. And in Mammoth Caverns, there's a story of Floyd Collins who gets trapped by rocks at the back of his legs and actually perishes in the cave. And uh, Crystal Caverns, I think it was, he was exploring. But that came somehow subtly to mind and it happens in the book. And afterwards I could go, where did that? And I go, ah, it's that. But I would never have seen it if I hadn't turned the corner. I, it, I wasn't going there. Mm -hmm. It wasn't my intent to get there, but the book wrote itself into that space. And, and I loved it when it happened. Yeah. The, the little, th this is why, and I, I always try really hard to be very even handed with this. There are plotters and there are pantsers yes. and plotters work the way they work because that's the way they need to work. Just like pantsers work the way they work. Pantser, for those of you who may not have heard me talk about this before, is short for flying by the seat of your pants. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I am a, an unrepentant pantser because if I know what's going to happen in the story, I can't write it. Yes. Like, what's the point? Yes. I already know. Yeah, you know? exactly. And, and so, you know, to me, if you made me follow a plot, I'd be wondering the whole time, what am I missing because I've closed off all of these other things? Whereas somebody who needs to plot is undoubtedly saying, how can you do that? It's like writing without a net. Are you crazy? You know, and there are yeah. people who are, who are in between, but I love having that room to discover something that I didn't expect for, you know, whatever weird little synapses decide to fire that day to fire in the way that takes me wherever that story wants to go. And I wouldn't give that up for love or money. No, no, I agree with you. And, and I do wonder if sometimes those of us that are not writers for, you know, basically our, our livelihood, I think you have to be a plotter if you have to be turning out book after book after book, because that's your livelihood. That's the way you have to, uh, you know, make your living. And so you better be, you know, really, con I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I just look at that would be more of the, uh, the need of that for a hobby writer. And I write before I go to work, I'm like Anthony Trollope, you know, he was a postmaster. So he would write in the morning, every morning, you know, he never skipped a day, not even Christmas day. Um, and that's how he was a prolific writer, but I, I don't have time. I maybe to do the plotting and like what you just said, if I was, if someone said, here's a plot, write this book and make it a good book, I would say, no, thanks. No, like you just said, yeah. I, what's the, I, I'm not interested. Like, I want to be surprised by my own story and by my own characters and cool surprises. Like there is stuff that's come up in this third book. Now that there's so much background and the characters are so well-developed in my head that they do the most surprising things and they make the most cool creations, things that I go, one of my characters is a Tia and, uh, she got this. She, she's great with a bow and she got this attachment to her bow from this particular city and these crafts. And I just, I went, I don't know how you got that, but that's really cool. Thank you for doing that. But uh, yeah, it's so much fun to just follow your curiosity. 
I'm fitting that in. I, I'm fitting that I'm, in. I'm not paying him to say that. <laughs> no, I, I, but I like I said at the beginning, I, maybe before we were recording, I just love the the title of it. There's been two. There's been, um, uh, I was on another podcast that was called Sustaining Creativity. And I thought, well, that's a cool title because we often think of creativity as the flashes instead of yeah. plodding and putting yourself in the place that the flash could happen, but plotting and taking it through. So sustaining creativity and following your curiosity, they just go hand in glove with me. You follow it and you sustain it. You follow it, you sustain it. And then cool things happen. Yeah. And and further to that with the idea of sustaining it, you know, a lot of people think that it's just the performance they see, you know, the dance or the theater or the orchestra or whatever. And it's like, Nah, if you've ever gone to a, you know a theater rehearsal oh, or yeah. an orchestra <laughs> rehearsal or whatever, there is a lot of just plain bloody hard oh. work that goes into all of that. It can be a slog. Oh yeah, and yeah. it's not just this beautiful thing that you see. Like, oh wow, that's amazing! I mean, yeah. you get there though. For me, I've always noticed there. There's a part of me, maybe even the biggest part of me loves the rehearsal process more than mm. the actual performance. Have yeah, you it's fun. that in your theater experience? Uh, yeah, I, I, I love going. It's the camaraderie of, of yeah. pulling that off. And for me, because my mind is so restless, and I, the director of the shows that I've been in is a friend of mine, she allows me to play with the, uh, with the words, the, the, the nuances and the things that are there. And so she actually gives me the latitude to, I'll say to her, Hey, do you mind if I try something out here? You might like this. And she says, sure, go for it. And then I'll say to the fellow cast members, okay, you're going to do that. You're going to do that. I'm going to do this and let's just see if it works. And so I get to almost self-direct in a way in this community theater experience and she trusts me for it. And sometimes she'll go, no, didn't. And she goes, love it. That's brilliant. Let's put that in. You know, we got to have that. And uh, so Daddy Warbucks got to do some really fun things. Uh, <laughs> and and like you said, though, the, the hard work. I mean, I'm not a dancer and he has to do these dance numbers. And uh, I, I actually wrote myself out of one of them because I said to her, okay, I'm, I'm rooting the scene here. You know, you got these great young kids that are dancing up a storm. I said, I'll just go over there and I'll buy some flowers from that flower person and I'll have a little side conversation they won't know what we're saying and then i'll bring them back to annie at the end of this number and present them and i said you're gonna have a better scene because i'm not a dancer but you know it, it worked but yeah that is like pulling teeth to get me to learn a dance number but uh, yeah great fun anyways yeah and you know i think that also speaks to being willing to play, being willing to experiment, not yes. getting hung up on the idea that this is my vision and it must be exactly this way. Because as yeah. you say, you know, I mean, it's it's very courageous for you as an actor to walk up to a director and say, hey, look, this is, I know I'm not doing what you need me to do. How about we do this instead? I mean, that that takes a lot of guts. A lot of people would not want to be that vulnerable and, and yeah. say, I don't want to ruin your show. But at the same time, it takes guts for the director to have that kind of flexibility. Yes, and yeah. Willing to to try different things that weren't originally what she had in mind, and I think that's how you discover things, kind of like writing by the seat of your pants that you weren't expecting that you know you thought it was going to be this way, but oh hey, it turns out this other thing actually works better. Yes. But if you yeah. were so tunnel visioned on one idea, you'd never leave room for all of those other things. And that's no. true in any yeah. part of life. Well, and I like your idea of, 
of not limiting yourself when someone says, okay, we need you to make this to allow your brain to go, well, okay, well, that's the effect you want, but is there something that we could turn, you know, I like that spinal tap, turn it up to 11. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how do we take this up a notch for the audience sake? And one of my favorite shows I designed for was a, um, the show from, I didn't act in this one. It was Narnia. I was just the, the creator of the set and it was pure magic. He would say, well, I want this. And I'd say, no, no, I'm going to give you a real sleigh. I'm going to give you a snowbank to come down on made out of white styrofoam. The igloo is going to be on a big rotating platform and we're going to be able to bring the characters in and out. The trees are actually going to move and open. It'll be like a docking station. And the, the cupboard, the wardrobe is going to be on huge casters and be able to be manipulated with four people inside of it by two little fairies. And, you know, I, I would just go, and after a while he would go like, you're crazy. And I'd say, well, let me, give me a bit and I'll do it. The Turkish delight dropped by a parachute from the ceiling. And uh, I made all kinds of contraptions. The, the cup of hot cocoa got shot out of the cup can and out of the stage. Uh, the stone table rose and smoke. And I just went crazy. I had so much fun with this thing. And then uh, he got to the point where uh, the white witch says, I said snow. And they wanted this little someone to drop a handful of snow out in front of the audience. And I said, give me a little bit here. I'll be back to you with something. And I went and got two confetti cannons and I mounted them on either side of the audience. And when the white witch said, I said snow, boom, the entire audience was full of snow. The, the janitorial staff hated me. I bet they did. <laughs> but floating down and you'd see, you'd hear the gas from the little children and the adults. And you'd see the little kids grasping for the snow falling. It was absolute pure magic. And it, that to me, it's like a defining moment for me because the joy that we invoked in those people enjoying the show was just raised, you know, to the roof and a beautiful thing to watch. So yeah, I, I love that idea of saying, don't be constrained by saying, well, we need this. Well, where could you take that? You know, how, how much better could it be? So great fun. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just, as you're talking, I'm thinking, which comes first? the really cool ideas or the fun ah, because it's sort yeah. of, you know, it's like yeah. a symbiotic thing. The more you get to play with it, the more you get to have fun with it, the more stuff I think is coming out of your head, like the yes. cannon and yeah. vice versa, you know, it, it feeds on itself. Yeah. And like you said, a director that's willing to trust, like, like the director and I, we've been together 20 years and we started out in Green Gables together. I was Matthew and, uh, you know, we played that scene, those scenes together. So we, we had that trust. This other fellow, he was the one that signed me up for, um, another play. And he said to me, okay, show me. I mean, he was willing to at least allow so many people shut things down without you know, you'll have this creative person, this curious mind. We do it all the time with little kids. So curious. And sometimes they're getting into trouble and they're doing crazy things and they're wrecking something. But we shut it. Oh, no, no. That's not the way it's done. Well, it could be, you know. So thankfully, those folks had enough trust to say, yeah, show me what you got. And then when I'd show it and say, they go, love it. You know, this is like, or else they'd say, yeah, but we just can't move that much stuff. Okay. Let's, that's fine. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll play with something else, but that, and maybe that's the idea is just this follow your curiosity in a playful, sustainable way. Like if you're not having fun and you're not playing, what's the point? You know, right. if, if it's drudgery, what's the point? Um, I don't get it. Uh, I think you had one of your qualified qualities on your, uh, your website where you said you like things that are silly. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's got to be, you know, laughing. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I I have two little nephews who are, they're six and nine now, which is Mm. not as little as I want them to stay forever. But anyway, (laughs) um, but, but, you know, I mean, silly is the order of the day with them. And I am perfectly happy to just let them run and do whatever they want within reason. But, you know, it's like, okay, you know, you want to climb up there? Yeah. We'll make sure we can get you down safely, but. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's Uh, try it out. Yeah, you know, I mean, they they just, it's amazing to watch them and it's so hard not to be caught up in it yourself, Mm. which is why it's so much fun. And I think we don't realize that that's why, you know, those of us who enjoy hanging out with little kids, that's why, you know, it wakes up that part of us that, you know, you're an adult now, you're not supposed to do these things. Well, why not? Yeah. You know, so getting back into that energy i think is is life-giving in a lot of ways and it certainly lights up all those parts of your head that you want to be lit up if you're going to do creative stuff yeah and why are you saying no you know like why Mm -hmm. why say no to things that come along uh because you're an adult but like so my during this last two years when things were kind of restrained a bit more my uh, kids came to me and said hey would, would you like to play dungeons and dragons with us and i went Okay, well, that sounds interesting. How is that done? Well, you do these sheets. So we've been playing this game. I've got three grandchildren. They're in their teens. They come over. Uh, my daughter, she's uh, here at home now because theater work is is few and far between. Uh, my son lives in the house because he's back here at home with his son. So it's we, we get around the table and we play D&D on these campaigns, you know, and I'm this kind of elf halfling kind of thing, you know, I don't even, I don't get it all. And sometimes I really mess up the games, like, because my mind goes into silly places. And, uh, the other day, uh, and, and the thing is you, there's no take backs in this game. So we're in a place, we're in a situation. And I said, well, I'm just going to do this. And I give this person this powerful globe and they're all going no but it's too late i've already given it to him and it turns out he's a villain he's a bad guy and he just basically smacks us so you know it's so much fun to just go and say okay let's see what that looks like great fun yeah and you know if you were writing a book somebody would say great you gave the villain more clout to make the lives of the protagonists more difficult and make everything more interesting exactly yeah yeah yeah, I've done that in the books. In fact, in the scepter, it's exactly what I did. My hero makes a huge mistake by giving someone the wrong thing, and it's like ugh, turns the story on its head. But then he's got to solve it. So let's, you know, keep it moving forward. Yeah, plot twist, as they say. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I love it when they do that for me. I, I couldn't invent some <laughs> of these twists when they when they do something that's just so random and silly, and I go, okay, I know it probably came out of my brain, but I don't know which corner it was hiding in. So thanks for finding it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we talked a little bit before we started recording about how we both have bullying as a shared experience in our history. And I'm curious, when you found yourself suddenly being drafted into a theater production with all of these people, did did that take some adjusting to? Was it a hard experience to kind of get yourself into or did it did it just kind of come naturally since you had always looked at it as something you know when you were a kid that wow this is amazing 
Well, I had always admired it, and I'd always walk by that room in my high school where the theater kids were rehearsing and laughing and doing their things, but I could not go in. Uh, it just it wasn't where I felt I could live at that point in time. So um, when this opportunity came along, at least I had enough people kind of on the inside, but there was also some real heavy drama people there that were very intimidating to me. And I knew I didn't have the chops for this in the sense that I had no experience. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know the lingo and the terminology. And I would, I was Bumble and I bumbled my way through the whole show. Um, and, uh, and, and it was hard at times to kind of go that, that sense of, you know, will I get, you know, you're an adult and you shouldn't be feeling this, but because of bullies and people in your life and feeling this sense of inadequacy that comes with that, uh, you just, even as an adult, you're going, oh, I don't want to mess this up. And will they not like me? And, you know, it's still all there. And it takes a while, uh, you know, and a lot of affirmation from from good directors. Uh, I can remember in the dying scene, Matthew Cuthbert is dying. And uh, I was just putting myself into the, the scene. And some kids were kind of twittering or giggling in the front rows. And... Uh, and uh, I was getting drawn out of it and I was feeling a little bit, and the director knew right away and he just stopped the scene and he said, this person is putting themselves heart and soul into this scene and he is dying on stage. This is a very difficult scene for him to do. I want everybody to be quiet and pay attention. And he just said, "Go, you're doing well. What you're doing is right. He said, you're gripping our hearts. You're, you're, what you're doing in this stage and uh, your death scene is working. Do not pull away from it. So when you have those people that believe in you and say, no, you're doing right. It's good. It works. So even in my writing now with the core series, I've got, you know, I, I don't know how many, I'm coming up on 10,000 downloads. I don't know who they are. They're all over the world. Wow. And, and I hear from some of them and I've got these few just really diehard fans who are constantly coming back to me and saying, I'm loving this. And I loved when that happened. And boy, that was great. And you don't need more than a handful of those, you know, a nice compliment a week can buoy you up for the rest of the week. So you in the in the bullying world, those bullies get to knock you down and quite literally knock you down in my case. And uh but to get back up and then to have someone else come along, put the hand down and say, let me help you to your feet. That turns the corner. So it's, it it, I, you know, we're always going to have those people that feel the need to suppress and, and squash others for whatever reason. Um, but it's the other ones that are picking us back up off our feet. And I've, I've been writing a lot of that. Uh, in fact, the bully in the hammer I, I maybe I better not tip my hand on that one, but I, I, I didn't keep him there. I, I gave him a heart and a soul and I, I under, I gave him an explanation of his home life and where he was coming from. And you actually learn to appreciate him later on. I guess that's the best way to put it. Yeah. Well, and you know, they do say that usually a bullied kid is being bullied somewhere. Yes. Else. Yeah. Very or much so. Is being bullied. I yeah. said that wrong, but that's yeah. I mean. And yeah. Yeah. So, which is, horrible it's yes horrible. it is it is but but you've also presented a great argument for people you know please make sure that if you've read a book that you liked if you hear a song that you like you know anything like that that you've experienced that somebody else has done tell them 
I think sometimes people don't speak up because they think, oh, they know that it's great. You know, they know everybody likes it, but they don't necessarily. And especially if it's something like, you know, a book or a recording or even a podcast where you can go and leave a rating and a review, that is incredibly helpful to, you know, authors love people who leave reviews for yep. very good reasons. So do podcasters, hint, hint. Oh yeah, hint, um, hint. And, but, but even if it's just, you know, you're walking down the street and somebody's busking, yeah, you can throw some money in the hat for them, but it doesn't hurt to say, this is really great, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I, I, lo- I love what you're doing. Thank you for, and, you know, do more of that. Uh, that's, it's, and, and I think just this whole idea of appreciation, not taking anything or anyone for granted. I, I close every single podcast that I do, my chapters and the backspace with thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm not taking anybody for granted. I, you invested 15, 20 minutes to listen to what I created. You don't owe me that, you know? So thank right. you. I, I appreciate the fact that you gave me a gift of your time to listen to what I'm doing. And that's great. And as far as the literary bullies, you know, the critics, the ones that want to rip everything apart, the beauty of what I'm doing is because my book is absolutely free and anybody in the world that wants to listen to it can start listening and and work their way through all the chapters in the Backspace podcast. If there's a critic out there, I don't need to listen to you because I never charged you anything for it. And, uh, you know, it's not a commercial product and I'm not claiming to be a commercial author. So if you don't like it, oh, well, you know, eh, that's fine. Go read something that you might like, hopefully, and uh, we'll carry on. Blessings on you. Go in yeah. peace, but please go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Please take that somewhere else. Far away yeah. from me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I feel like that's actually a really good place to end, and we're about okay. in time anyway, even though, I mean, Honestly, I think we could sit here and do this for another couple hours and never run out of things to talk about. But um, but yeah, this has been a great conversation and thank you so much. Yeah, great fun. That's our show for this week. Thanks to my guest, Vance Newdorf, for joining me. And as always, to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And don't forget to leave a review. Thanks. You know, I talk to people all the time who are feeling totally lost, overwhelmed, and stuck creatively. And I know there are lots more of you out there who are feeling the same way. So I made something to help. Check out the link in your podcast app for my creative tune-up kit. It's 37 bucks, super affordable, and it's full of my favorite coaching tools to help you rediscover your creative self and make progress fast. I would love to get it into your hands so that you can get unstuck and create beautiful things this year. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. 